Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the very last COVID conversation. Yeah, maybe they'll put up a statue for me on the high street, pensively wiping my brow whilst thinking my deep thoughts and spilling the contents of a sandwich over my microphone. Momentarily a hero to asking all the obvious questions, down the track cursed and reviled for my many sins and pushed into the river like some drunken disco refugee. The one thing about statues you have to understand, they have a life cycle, they go up, they change color, they get torn down because that once upon a time hero is now an unpleasant zero. This has been going on for 5,000 years at the least. All of which brings me to today's guest, historian Dr. Dow Blair, former president of the American Civil War Roundtable of Australia. Welcome to my little ghost town, Dale. Thanks, John. Lovely to be here. Very good. Well, look, first of all, the American Civil War Roundtable. You meet in a pub in ye old Richmond, and you've done so for years. What's the fascination in 100 years or less, if you can? <laughs> uh, it's actually really interesting because... Um, a lot of the people in the round table are of my own vintage and we all followed the same pathway uh, into the Civil War and that was basically that we were all attracted to it in some way by the commemorations of the centenary that happened in the 1960s and that filtered back to, to Australia as well. And, and as an 11-year-old, I read a book called uh, Heroes in Blue and Grey, and it was by a fellow by the name of Robert E. Alter, and uh, it was part of, the, if you remember these, the hardback Walt Whitman series of kids' books. Used to do ranges of series of uh, TV shows and things like that, and I had a couple of history ones of which um, uh, this Civil War book was part of. And uh, so without knowing it, we, we became victims of the... Um, of the lost cause, which was basically this post-Civil War uh, phenomena where the Confederacy or the Southerners retold the Civil War narrative in a way that whitewashed slavery. And um, it became about the war for Southern independence or the uh, war of states' rights. Uh, and all the leaders were, chival uh, were chivalrous and heroic. They were fighting the good fight, protecting their hearth and home against impossible odds. So uh, for, but, but for an 11-year-old, of course, yeah. it shrinks down to boys' own adventure. Oh, very much so. And so the, the book itself was about uh, various battles and the generals within those battles. And, and so, you know, that was the focus of, of you know, um, of Pickett's charge and of uh, Pelham fighting with his lone gun against the Confeder uh, federal batteries across the, the river at Fredericksburg and things like that. So, so, so all, all they were pretty rip-roaring great stories. Great and, of course, prehistoric, uh, not prehistoric, excuse me, pre-industrial war. So you've got your cannons, you've got your charges. Yep. But, of course, over time, um, you and your fellow enthusiasts with the round table, of course, your, your understanding has broadened and, and become more complex with the, yes, the unfortunate the, reality of... Uh, 
the, the more mature you come and the, the more reading you do about the subject, you actually um, come to the, the point of view that, well, okay, the slavery actually did have something to do with it. And uh, and so, yes, yeah, so the, the round table itself um, grew very much in that Brisbane. We had some very impressive uh, scholars came and spoke to us and were part of the group as well. And uh, the late Warren Allen is one who comes to mind. He was a, a very much an important figure in my life and a mentor for me um, in terms of research in history. Well, of course, you've ended up being a war historian, but of course, largely to do with the First World First War, War. And, and so forth. Look, um, moving on, are there any heroes from that past never-ending conflict that deserve to remain standing on a plinth? So we're moving to statues. Yeah, the uh, of course, the, the current climate of debate over there, we're seeing uh, many Confederate statues being pulled down, and um, but you've got one bloke. Yeah, there's, uh, there's who, a who was a Confederate. Yeah, on the losing side, yeah. on what we now historically think of as the evil side, <laughs> the side of dark, yeah. the side of the darkness. Yeah. And yet he is. You see that he is actually worthy of of some honouring because of uh, mm. his his. Life story. So James Longstreet is who we're talking about, and uh, Longstreet was a Southern general. He was one of uh, General Robert E. Lee's most trusted uh, commanders. Uh, he's quite a tragic figure in in some ways, but he's also a redemptive one as well. So he was born in South Carolina. He grew up as a boy in Georgia. His father owned a plantation. As a young man, he owned a small amount of slaves himself. So he grew up in the peculiar institution. He was no stranger to slavery. It was part of his family's life and tradition, uh, you would argue. But when we, when the Civil War ends, and uh, and he, you know, he had the trauma of uh, of you know fighting in those battles, being severely wounded as well. Uh, he lost three of his four children to scarlet fever within six days in an epidemic uh, wow. in Richmond. But at the end of the Civil War. He joins the Republican Party. So if we talk about politics of left and right, the Republican Party was an abolitionist party or had a number of abolitionists in it uh, who wanted to end slavery, and it was a left-wing party. And he joins Lincoln's party, basically, and Lincoln is anathema to the South. He is the man that caused the Civil War, according to the South. He doesn't—he virtually doesn't poll a vote in the South uh, in the 1860 elections. And here is Longstreet, this former Confederate general joins the Republican Party and his message to fellow Southerners is we need to get on, we need to get behind the government and progress our lives. So he becomes something of a social pariah after the war. It's not helped by the fact that... Social pariah to the South. To the South. So uh, it's not helped by the fact that his cousin, Julia Dent, marries Ulysses Simpson Grant. Grant, the great nemesis of the South, who wins the war for the North, uh, defeats Robert E. Lee, and he, and he's basically a relative of, of Longstreet's. And so Longstreet goes to work in New, New Orleans, and he's in New, New Orleans in 1874 when the White Leaguers, who are effectively, let's simplify and call them white supremacists, they want to redress what they see as Republican tyranny in the Reconstruction South. So right. they feel that uh, the Republicans have gone too far in stripping back their way of life and, and um, their opportunity, if you like. And so Longstreet? Longstreet um, is called out and he heads up the militia in New Orleans, which is a mixed white and black militia. 
and he leads them against these white leaguers, militants, uh, who have in recent days have uh, defeated or, or overrun the Metropolitan Police as part of their uprising to try and reclaim the city. So he's very much a figure of post-reconstruct or post-Civil War uh, progress in terms that he abandons his, his pre-war allegiance, if you like, to the South to become part of this new way forward under the Republicans. But he's a great figure, I think, and he's a story that probably America needs to have told right at this very moment, that in fact people can change. That um, Yeah, for me, and within whether you say it's the American context or the Australian context, it's just this great story of a guy who started out with one set of beliefs, living a certain life, part of an old order that, that was highly... No longer. Uh, no longer, but also was highly problematic, the keeping of slaves. Yep. And, uh, and then later fights and, and keeps fighting. Because mm. one thing that seems to me that really is getting lost in the current climate is that nuance, is that sort of let's have a look at the whole person, what they're about, and everyone's becoming a symbol of one thing or another. I guess it's what happens in hot times. Now, look, who would you like to take a hammer and chisel to? Not someone still alive, if you don't mind. Let the pigeons have a go first. But also, before you tell me who you want to take a hammer and chisel to, just remind us that recently, <laughs> very yeah. funny story, yeah. where uh, within, the, within this whole tear down the statue movement, the wrong guy got torn down. An actual re- a guy who yeah, actually been yeah, on the right hands uh, right uh, side of in, history. In, in Wisconsin at Madison, there was a, a public protest. Uh, it was in response to inappropriate police violence uh, again, and uh, in their anger, the the protesters beheaded a statue. <laughs> And dragged him off into the street. And I can't remember if they threw him into the river as well. But and it was uh, Hans Christian Hegg, Colonel Hans Christian Hegg. Now this is a uh, a man who was publicly against slavery, fought on the federal side, and uh, was killed at the Battle of Chickamauga, and uh, which is a huge battle in in the West during the Civil War. So here's this. So statue here's a guy who's, who's who was killed. Defending, well, well, ca- writing for, to, to try and abolish slavery. Yes. Uh, he is killed, uh, gives his life to the <laughs> preservation of the Union, uh, and these protesters have gone out in their anger uh, and ignorance uh, have, have just probably gone, Civil War statue, pull it down. No nuance there whatsoever. So, t- all right, and please do make it quick because mm-hmm. I'm going to die, you're going to die soon, and we'll yeah, be part of history sure. if, we, if we don't move on. Probably no statues for us. So who would you who would you take a hammer and chisel to? Uh, well, thinking of uh, Australian uh, history, some of our early leaders, if you like, are probably a bit problematic. Um, you would uh, so I'm thinking of people like James Sterling over in Western Australia. He was uh, first governor over there, and uh, he was implicated in the um, massacre of uh, of Aboriginals uh, in those early years uh, of the settlement uh, over there. He's one, uh, and he has been, that statue over there has actually been um, targeted um, by activists. John Batman's another one here uh, in Melbourne whose statue was up for many years. I think it was in Collins Street. It's actually no longer there because they moved it because of some renovations going on in the nearby buildings. But I don't think it's been put back anywhere and probably with good cause because um, 
you know, the historical record shows Batman to have been an absolute brute, and he, he was responsible for the massacre of many Aboriginal people in Tasmania, uh, as well as um, uh, in around Melbourne. And uh, also, you know, he bought these large tracts of land off the Wurundjeri people in a uh, deal that was less than uh, savoury. Uh, and in fact, the governor of the day quashed the whole thing, but not because of any great sympathy for the Indigenous people, but because he, uh, Batman didn't have a right to go around selling Crown land. Right. <laughs> so, um, but there are a couple of figures, and I think there's probably some more figures like that that will crop up as we... Um, you know, as the debate heats up in this country around uh, how we remember the past and 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 what's deemed appropriate as as to what how we signify that past, how we tell that story. Well, speaking of which, and this is on to the main game. Captain Cook chased a chook all around, all around Australia, Australia, lost his pants in the middle of France, mm. and found them in Tasmania. If you were to teach Captain Cook, he's been a matter of discourse lately. Mm-hmm. What are three good things that are worth knowing? and celebrating about him. The first part of his first voyage is to actually undertake a scientific expedition uh, to to view the transit of Venus in Tahiti. Uh, so that's a significant undertaking that he's involved in, which advances um, knowledge about the solar system. So that's an important, that's one important thing that he's involved in. So he made a contribution to science. Contribution to science. Uh, second one, he certainly improved the livelihood of thousands upon thousands of uh, Royal Navy seamen with his um, the way in which he tackled scurvy and uh, conditions on board. So he, he ensured that better diets uh, for the sailors uh, on his ship. Well, I, I grew up thinking that he fed them onions. Was it was it better than that? Well, I thought it was lime. Oh, limes. Uh, um, Nice with a GNT. Oh no, no, no! It was a plant that they they gathered. All oh, right, um, and which he gathered in New Zealand, and and now I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, Doesn't matter. Man. Okay, so that's two that he he mysteriously uh, he mysteriously overturned the threat of scurvy. Yeah, was the na- his navigation. Oh, he's a navigator. He, he was a master seaman. And uh, he was a wonderful navigator and, and cartographer, obviously. With And he was involved. He did, he's done three virtually world trips where he circumnavigated the world. He has mapped uh, Canada. Uh, even during the Seven Years' War, he's, uh, he was mapping Newfoundland and, um, and Nova Scotia uh, as part because he was part of the, the Navy then. He's done the Pacific Islands. He's done up through the Bering Straits. He's done the east coast of Australia. He was the first one to uh, make it known that, uh, well, to the Western world at least, that New Zealand was actually two islands. So he's mapped all that. And and the tale of Cook and his men, when they actually, when the Endeavour actually uh, runs against the reef as they're about to leave uh, the environs of Australia, is uh, an incredible story of seamanship. So you're basically going to give him number four, Oh, that's uh, that's uh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a really quite an extraordinary resilience and endurance. It's a really extraordinary tale. Um, that time he spends up near uh, Cooktown. So this is this is where the endeavour mm. gets stuck on a reef. Yep. and actually gets holed. Yep, a massive piece of coral comes through the hull, and they have to try to pump the water. He's got all hands on there. They're pumping all through the night trying to get this in. Some of the pumps have rotted and are no good. They start throwing cannon and everything overboard, and they finally get her off the reef, and they then uh, bandage her up by using a sail and what they call okra, I think it was, which they um, would 
put in all sorts of tar and old rope bits and, and it would make this slushy mess and they would throw this sail over the side of the, the boat and pull it uh, tight and it would create this vacuum and that would all suck into the hole. So they keep her afloat and they get her up to Cooktown and they run her in ashore. How far, did it, how far out were they, do you know? Oh, I, haven't, I couldn't tell you the exact amount of kilometres, but there's certainly a few days sailing away from... Uh, it takes them a few days to get up so to, that's a bit to, of to cook down. So, yeah. And they're doing it very slowly as well. Um, and then, of course, they repair the boat um, there and then uh, while they're in Cooktown. And then they have to get out in this uncharted water of shoals and reefs. And it's, it's an extraordinary effort to, to keep that boat afloat and fix it and get it back to safety and sail it back to England. Do we know much about him as, as a personality? We do a little bit from some of the accounts of other, uh, some of his crew have, have written uh, journals uh, after their expeditions, etc. He, of course, kept his own journals, which he had to do as part of uh, being in the Royal Navy, and they're quite important um, documents. Um, so we, he was quite a um, enlightened man for his times, I would argue. Uh, he was certainly there was a bit of a power struggle with him and Joseph Banks on the first uh, on the first trip. Uh, Banks was this. <laughs> Banks is this uh, really quite incredible character. The botanist. Play, yeah, the botanist, a playboy, loaded with cash, incredibly vain. And so he comes aboard the, the Endeavour and, and, and so he's, Cook has got this struggle to, to maintain his command of the ship. And was it a con- conflict of charisma? It wasn't about charisma. It was more and because Cook was actually quite a reserved man. Banks was not, uh, and Banks was uh, full of ego. And, and, and what happens is that Banks goes ashore in South America and, and, and it's disastrous. He, a man dies, for, or might have been two that die, and he loses face basically when he gets back on the boat. But Cook was, um, he was quite lenient with his crew uh, as well. So one of the th- things about the Royal Navy in these, you know, in the early 1800s and the late 1700s is that uh, the officers were quite, authoritarian and uh, and brutal like the, the oh, discipline people, people were whipped the discipline on these boats was incredibly harsh yeah uh, and this is why you had the marines on board any royal navy vessel were there to protect the captain from the crew effectively that was their job <laughs> and, and they they resided between the captain uh, so and, there's and sort of a presumption that you take a job as the captain. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, Mr. Bastard job and you need a bunch of people uh, around you with exactly. guns too. All that. and But but Cook was actually quite generous. And, and as we say with the scurvy thing, he was looking out for, for the crew and the welfare of the crew. Well, so, look, all right, I'm falling in love with him already. So I, and obviously <laughs> I need to temper those emotions. So let's talk about three bad things. Three bad things. Well, I guess they do resort to violence uh, against Indigenous people on, on the on the voyage, on the first voyage, certainly, and certainly on the third. Um, so why, why did they? Again, this is the, the, the case. We, we have to appreciate what Cook's role or job is here. He's the commander of a Royal Navy ship. So his job is to protect that ship and to protect that crew uh, whilst he's doing... Uh, his, his work. So when they felt threatened, as they did at one point... Um, where, where was that? Uh, this is when they get to Botany Bay. Right. And um, they go ashore. They're actually fishing to get supplies so that they can continue on up the coast. 
And they do see, uh, you know, they know that uh, the area is inhabited by uh, Indigenous people. Uh, and they try to make overtures, they try to advance uh, and, and make contact with those people, but the Eora people there are uh, suspicious of them and uh, very cautious, and so they retreat before those uh, advances. And then um, they leave trinkets. But then there's a moment where the Indigenous people feel a little more emboldened. They start to make approaches. Cook's men feel threatened and they fire upon them. And, and we know that they... So what were they threatened, feeling threatened by? Were they? I suppose just uh, a warlike, what they perceived as a warlike attitude um, right. being adopted toward them. So they, they fire upon them. Um, but there is a measure of restraint there as well because they load up with light buckshot. So the intention is not to actually do any great harm. Uh, as opposed to much heavier shot, which will definitely tear a yes. hole uh, tear yeah. a hole in you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so you know, you could say that there's some restraint exercised there. You told me that he was actually under orders to avoid... Yeah, he has. Um, he carries with him. Well, I don't know if he carries the letter with him to uh, on the voyage, but it was certainly given to him by Lord Morton, who was the president of the Royal Society, and it's the Royal Society who are funding this this True. trip, basically. Yeah. And Lord Morton gives him advice as to how he should interact with local people that they meet, because there were actually protocols at the time on these seafaring nations about how you in, engage with uh, Indigenous people. And, and there was an understanding that this was their land and so that you had to treat with them, right? You had to actually treat with them and, you know, encourage them to sell you that land so that you could, you know... Uh, so the, the expression treat with them, I guess, is negotiate with Negotiate them. with them, yeah. Uh, but, of course, this was all weighted in the way of the Europeans. It was, you know, um, because these European we, we, contracts... We want to take the land, but we're going to try and be half-decent yeah, about it. about it, yeah. But, you know, there was never... It was always one way. But yeah. nonetheless, there were these, these were protocols. And he had been uh, told that, you know, you don't want to use force against the Indigenous people. What you want to do is show them a demonstration of your force, so... Of your kill, power. Kill, kill a wombat. Shoot a local bird or some sort of local animal. Uh, show them the power of your weapons by putting a hole through one of their huts or something like that. There's also some violence again when they get up to the Cooktown area against the Gugu Yimitsa people up there and a man is killed up there. This is why they're actually trying to repair well, their well, ship. Yeah. Well, and the relations they have there are, are quite amicable. And so the, the Gugu Yimitsa men come aboard the ship um, after a bit of, you know, encouragement. And then they have an incident where uh, they try to, um, the local men, try to take a turtle away, which the crew had captured, and they felt that they were entitled to take this turtle away, of which the crew objected to, and this uh, things get a little heated, and then one of the men was shot, and he was an out, one of the older men was shot and, uh, and, and died as a result. That then soured relations, obviously, uh, and uh, the local people then uh, set about reprisals by burning the bush nearby and buildings uh, and, and threatening, the, uh, th threatening the encampment, if you like. Uh, but they come together before they leave and they actually reconcile and this mm. reconciliation point is, uh, is named after in honour of that um, coming together again. Oh. So, so that's a, a negative, obviously, from... Um, and, you know, that violence is obviously a, a negative in terms of uh, thing. But in context, compared with the invasion that follows and the frontier wars, etc., which is a catastrophic for, for indig Indigenous people in this country, we need to get some balance about, you know, what 
uh, where Cook sits within that. I suspect that because there was violence done because someone was killed, the, the Indigenous position now will be would be hard to shift in terms of sympathy on, on that. Yeah, probably. Uh, but but I, I get the feeling that the, the issue with Cook is more about he opened the, the way the for, discovery of Australia yeah. and the Indigenous position is that we've been here for 40 or 60,000. We didn't need to be discovered. Where, you know, this idea of Australia was discovered when we've already been living from a European perspective, obviously. Well, was it discovery or the fact that he took back the report that was going to be... I mean, there's old Dirk Hartog and all those people from 1616. Well, nobody knew about the extent of the Southland. It was assumed that there might be this continent down there. Uh, And and yes, you're right, there was Torres uh, up north, there was uh, Van Diemen and Hartog who had all touched the coast at various points. But, yeah, the, the ramifications of Cook's, uh, of Cook's visit, of course, is that he submits his journal to the Admiralty, as does Joseph Banks, as publishes his uh, widely. His becomes a, um, a bestseller. Uh, These are illustrations of the unusual Yeah, but also observations of the land and the people, etc. Yes. Uh, and the recommendation within those reports is that Australia is a fertile land and that it could be... Uh, you know, it would be um, worthy of settlement or you could come here and survive and you could put crops down, etc. At the same time, of course, they did make very plain, and of course with Banks's book, made very plain that it was an, it was an inhabited place. Yeah, so... Um, so the Cook, whole Cook, argument later was... Cook faithfully records the existence of Aboriginal people um, uh, in the land. Uh, and, of course, you know, that whole concept of terra nullius, which comes in to play with, to justify the seizing of the land, that, oh, it's not inhabited, uh, which is a nonsense, of course. Uh, what they were talking about was not inhabited. It was not worked in any... Uh, in any um, what the, the, the concept that's caused a lot of pain, a lot of anguish, but it can't, that actually can't be ascribed to, to Cook. No. No, but it is a consequence of, right. uh, of those reports. So, okay, so he did violence or his company did violence... His work then essentially encouraged these uh, white settlement. What was his number three? That would come back to uh, more with his crew and he, uh, his his role as a commander. He loses um, judgment um, by the third by his third trip. You would have to say that he uh, suffers from a lack of judgment, um, which leads directly to his death and the death of uh, a number of his crew. What had he come to up himself or? I think uh, he'd become a lot more authoritarian, so whereas he'd been quite lenient with the crews uh, in the previous voyages, he now found himself being, um, you know, being quite draconian uh, in the treatment of, uh, and punishments that he was meeting out to some of the crew. What, what led to that? Was it just um, becoming a cranky there, old man or something? There, there's, there's some argument that he wasn't well, that he, had, uh, that he was mentally, he was starting to, to suffer mentally. Right. Uh, he also so it must must be said that he he was quite empathetic to indigenous people as well in those first voyages. He he viewed the um, the lifestyle of uh, the Aboriginals here as quite idyllic compared to all the pressures of European life, and he, and he felt that in many ways they were probably happier than than, than Europeans were. Uh, he loved the purity uh, of life um, and environment that he found that he came upon in Tahiti. And by the time he gets to the third voyage, these places was not so much uh, Australia, but certainly the Pacific Islands, Tahiti, 
has become corrupted by constant European visitors. Uh, and so, you know, there's... So they're sick of it. So I think there's a part of Cook is saying this, you know, this has just been corrupted by um, lascivious behaviour on the part of the sailors and uh, and that in, in turn has is, is upset the natural balance of... Uh, what do you mean, like uh, sleeping uh, with yeah. local women and things all, like all that? All those things, yeah. So, um, uh, and so then he, uh, and as part of this draconian idea of governing by the rule book, when a longboat uh, off the ship is is taken by the by the local people in Hawaii, he goes ashore to arrest the the chief, and there are numbers of uh, of, of the local people there. And when these the you know, cook and these these marines come up to take the chief away, who he's going to take basically hold hostage until he gets the boat back and, and other equipment that that had been stolen. The chief, from some of the accounts I've read, the chief sort of goes, acquiesces to, to, to it and starts to be let off. But the people around him start to get really agitated and are urging him not to go uh, with Cook. And by the time they go from the, the village um, down to the water's edge, things have become fairly white hot and, um, and violence erupts down on the shore and Cook's men try to fight a, a retreat into the, the boat to get back to the, uh, get back to the main boat and uh, that's where Cook is, uh, is killed um, down there. So it was a complete misreading um, of, the, it's a poor uh, judgment. Uh, uh, of the situation on his part in that case. But Take it, It's interesting, you were sort of saying that because there'd been this pollution of, of these places by white visitors and ships coming mm. in and, and and obviously, of course, you know, if you're sleeping with local women, you're making half-white babies and causing all mm. sorts of difficulties. Was there a link between that, do you think, and Cook's suddenly becoming a lot more authoritarian with his own men because he felt, well, there's this great undiscipline going on with the people visiting these people, so I'm going to keep my men under a much greater control is there anything in that? I think there probably is. I'm, I'm not enough widely read on uh, on Cook and that aspect of his, his thing, but I, it makes sense that that would be the case, and that his crew would have been participating, and they would have seen that as a part of their right, um, as you know, to come ashore and and um, to participate in those joys as well. But of course, for a commander of a Royal Navy ship, that was just undermining the the um, the discipline of the, of the ship and the, and the mission, if you like. So now Cook is still taught to grade four. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know if he still is, but he said my kids certainly, you know, were, were taught Cook in grade four at primary school. Right. So, so you don't know if he still is. Uh, but we've got to find this out. Well, yeah, and yeah. and how much and how and and. But and the so story forth. that I gathered was told because I was totally ignorant of of all these other voyages at the time as well. And so when the kids came home with all this stuff on Cook, I was amazed. <laughs> so, Were you an historian by then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, honestly, you historians, you cause so much trouble. You got the history wars, and yeah, half the time you don't even know what you're talking about. Exactly, but I had my head stuck in other other periods of history. But um, well, look, speaking of history, scholarly history is pretty messy. I mean, because it's it can't be just one simple lovely story. No. When we met more than twenty years ago, you published a book that was getting you criticised and and in a bit of strife, and that was Dink and D Diggers. 
I think the fellow in the Australian was very keen on seeing you pilloried. <laughs> in fact, I spoke to him, and he, we were sort of he and I were related because we're both sort of descendants of of, oh, um, of King of Governor oh, King. Yeah, okay. And so he he he's almost metaphorically put his arm around me. Oh, we've got to bring this fellow down. Yeah. Well, yeah. because the, the story that you told did, did to a degree took apart the myth of the Golden Anzac as this unfailingly courageous full of daring do person, you know, hero. And, you, and instead you kind of told a story of people doing their, their broken hearted best in the face of outsized horror. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think anyone who actually just turned up was in the trenches, heard the whistle, went over the top. That's pretty heroic to me mm. um, just to do it. Mm. It's not really daring do. It's like just going with what's happening and, and hoping for the best. But the thing is, are we ready to accept that reality now that, that um, is less golden, is more human? Are we prepared to accept the more complex reality of our national history? I think we have matured, uh, in, if we talk about that 20-year period, uh, you know, I think we have sort of matured and that there is a, a, a greater evenness, if you like, in the way in which we approach um, ANZAC. There is still a cohort out there who, who you might term as nationalists, who, who want to tell that story of, of Australian exceptionalism and, uh, and of uh, Australians winning the war, etc. But and that sort of populist view is the bane of historians, of course. And, um, and but it seems I think we're always going to be fighting those spot fires. I think. Well, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to when things <laughs> calm down a little bit from everything from the woke generation, which I think is. <laughs> tying itself in knots and even how to talk about anything. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of feel for them. I mean, I know that the young people who talk about it are, are, are striving for something. It's, it's, it does have historical import, but goodness, it's, it, so it's, it's getting to the point where a conversation is very difficult to be staged. So I'm hoping we can get to that point where a, a, a more nuanced, patient conversation. I think well, patience. There is this. Isn't it? There's this mad desire to want to know the answers now, to want everything resolved now, to uh, and well, is there uh, look, there are things that and, probably and, do deserve to be resolved. Course, but, say, but you also need 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 time. For this. And I used to say to my students, you probably need to wait twenty years before a good history is going to be written about this particular time. If we talk about this COVID time right now, you're not going to see a decent history on this until we've had that passage of time where we have the understanding. We've got this madness at the moment about, you know, everybody, oh, the government should do this or the government should do yeah. that. Why haven't they done this? Yeah. Well, the science is still out on COVID. They're still working it out. And the message that does keep going out is there is a hell of a lot of reliance on yeah. self-responsibility. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's a whole other yeah. issue. But you, you do talk about that. You were just sort of saying that idea that, as young people especially, you know, they want to know mm. now. I don't know if, even if it's at that point because to, to want to know means you've got curiosity. Mm. What's actually happening now is we do know. There's that yeah. righteousness. Yeah. I'm right. No, I'm yeah. right. Blah, blah, blah. Look, on that rather muddled note, we have to say farewell, Dr. Darbley, but I do thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. Lovely to chat. All right. Now, look, guess what? I'm actually thinking we'll be hearing from Dale Blair again. Why? Because as resident historian on my brand new podcast, because I'm not going anywhere. 
In a couple of weeks, I'll be back with a brand new format, lively and fascinating. It's so new we haven't even had it christened with a name. Keep your eyes peeled and your excitement held steady. And I will talk to you then.